Tom Doherty is an American publisher who founded Tor Books in the spring of 1980 on his birthday. One, if not the world's leading publisher of science fiction titles, having won Locus Magazine's poll for best publisher every year since 1988. That's not just an award, that's the public telling you that you're doing something that's pretty darn good. Tor Books was sold to St. Martin's Press in 1988. The publisher has won more awards or been nominated for more science fiction awards than any other at, at 157 at this point, is it? I don't remember. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> it's up there. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm speaking with Tom Doherty. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Pleasure to be here. The first thing that struck me when I googled the company name was the Tor Books site came up, but right after that, Tor Community site came up, which tells me something about your genre. Yeah, I think we've got to constantly learn. We've got to constantly be in touch with the people who read our books, and we've got to listen to what they're interested in. Otherwise, we're not going to be very effective in our communication with them. We're not going to be very satisfying. So we do attempt outreach. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons so many of, even before the websites were developed, so many editors uh, spent so much time at conventions like this to meet with people to listen to what they thought of what we had done and to try and respond, to try and do better. Well, that can be said of any business or uh, any publisher. Oh, yeah, but I think I think we have maybe tried a little, a little harder to... How shall I start it? I, I grew up in publishing, did all the various sales jobs at Simon & Schuster up through Vice President of Sales and Marketing. I always felt there that there was rivalry between editorial and sales that these were all good, proud people doing a good job. And the salespeople thought, boy, we, we work so hard. We do this great job of selling and marketing. If only the books were a little better, we'd have all these bestsellers. At the same time, the editors were talking to each other. Sales was, uh, was on 39th Street. Editorial was at 635th Avenue. They would talk to each other and reinforce their positions. Editorial would be saying, God, we do all these wonderful books. If only we had a better sales organization, <laughs> a better sales job, right. we would have all these Those best lazy sellers. salesmen. These were all good people. They meant well, but they were so sure that what they were doing was, was right. And we didn't even have the communication within the company. And when I started Tor, I made everybody crazy by mixing up the sales and editorial offices so that they all sat next to each other. That's great. And People are a lot more careful about what they say, about what the other guy is doing when they're right next to the other guy. A little bit more and respectful. Exactly. And they, they weren't working each other up about how they were doing a great job and the other guy wasn't. And we tried to take that out into the field. We tried to meet with more people. We tried to understand a little better, to talk to more people. And, you know, hey, you're not going to do just what other people suggest, but you're going to consider what is said and you're going to try and bring these things all together into something that hopefully is going to be, first of all, we're selling entertainment. First of all, it's going to be a great story. First comes the story. But secondly, as I was saying to you before, we would love to do things that cause people to think, to dream about the future and what might be possible. And we think if people will do this, you know, if we can inspire people to empathize with people who are doing great things, some of those things will get done. They'll support them. So you're kind of doing good by doing good. You're selling a good book. You're making money as a publisher, but you're also inspiring people to do the things which could change the world. To me, that's one of the wonderful things about science fiction.
How specifically did the sales and the editorial work as a hybrid? How did they help each other? Well, you know, it wasn't the most efficient way to handle either department, but it was a great way to get them all to know each other, to be more sympathetic of each other's problems. And, you know, gradually we've kind of separated them more, but they're still all on one floor. They're not, I wouldn't ever put one group, you know, ten blocks away, because I think it's awfully important that they constantly communicate. Well, the other thing, first of all, you probably hire people whose minds are sort of cluttered with ideas. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're in editorial or in, they're in sales. And if these two groups are banging uh, ideas around together all the time, that can't exactly. help but help. Exactly. Sales is talking to outsiders. You can become a little insular in editorial when you're inside talking to just people with like jobs and like positions in the same place. Plus, I mean, your salespeople, you want them to be sci-fi. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The other thing, though, that I think we did that was different from other publishers, one of the reasons I could start a company with limited capital and compete with huge companies like Time Warner and Random House was that publishing, it's not like a steel company. You don't have huge investment in plant and equipment. What you have is people. The company is some of the talents of the people. I had always felt that there was no particular reason that the companies had to be structured the way publishing companies had classically been structured, you know, like the mixing of the sales and the editorial, but also nobody follows a salesman around and makes him come to an office nine to five or follows him around to see is he producing, they judge production. Same thing can be done with, with editors. We started telecommuting before the word was invented. I had a brilliant young editor, Harriet McDougall. She had been my editorial director at Grosset and Dunlap. She had handled a uh, young adult line called Tempo. I had gone from uh, Simon & Schuster in sales over to Grasset to be publisher of paperbacks. I loved science fiction and fantasy. I always had loved it. And I had been in a wonderful position at Simon & Schuster to be mentored because when I was sales manager, Ian and Betty Ballantyne were still running Ballantyne Books. It was an independent company. And they were distributed by Simon & Schuster. So I was, in effect, their sales manager when they launched the very first fantasy line, when they launched Tolkien, and they were very generous with their time and taught me a lot about the publishing side that a person in sales wouldn't normally have learned. I had always loved science fiction and fantasy. When I went to Grosset, we began publishing fantasy and science fiction in the YA line called Distempo with Harriet McDougall heading it up for me. We had enough success so that Ace had gone on hard times. They were a significant publisher of science fiction and uh, Grasset bought us Ace to play with. So we got to be publisher and editorial director of Ace Tempo, and we continued to do science fiction and fantasy. And again, we had really significant growth, and I was able to go to venture capital and borrow the money to start Tor. Sounds like it unfolded in a, in a way that you, know, you couldn't have wished it to unfold any better than that. No, I couldn't. But what I was getting at uh, in telling you this story is that at the end of our days at Ace, Harriet got divorced. She had a young son. She inherited a wonderful old home down on the Battery in Charleston with a 500-foot wall garden and... Uh, <laughs> who needs and, business? Yeah, and she thought that would be a better place to bring up her son. And I couldn't think to lose her, so I said, okay, fine, you, you move down there, we'll get your computer and a modem, and you'll send in your copy that way, and we'll talk a lot on the phone. 
when you need to meet with New York agents, fly up. And that would have been just right around the time when computers and modems were yep. coming in. Yep, it was. So it's an example of, of technology being there to allow you to play around with the structure of how a company is, is uh, put together. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It would probably be much more relaxed and, and in a better frame of mind, too, probably producing better work. And she found the biggest author we ever published on there. She had just uh, set up our office down in Charleston. She shopped in a bookstore. She had always shopped there as a girl. Uh, they had a customer who was an atomic engineer working on atomic submarines in the port of Charleston. He had an accident. He was a great reader, and he told the bookstore owner that he had always wanted to write a novel, and while he was recuperating on leave, he was going to write a novel. And this was Robert Jordan. Isn't that you know, whose last four books were number one New York Times bestsellers, number one Washington Post bestsellers, number one <laughs> on the Wall Street Journal. Huh. She found him in a bookstore in Charleston. We wouldn't have found him otherwise. An example of serendipity yeah. raising itself and playing into your hands. But there's more to it than that, well, I'm sure. Beth Beecham, for example, was we were able to recruit people that way. Because of her, her name? No, because, because we were open to this kind of, of work. Flexibility, okay. And in those days, everybody was still demanding people come to New York offices 9 to 5. And Beth had arthritis. She was a, a very fine editor. She's been nominated for a Hugo many times as editor, okay? Very fine editor. Had arthritis, wanted to live in the desert. I said, fine, Beth, go move to Tucson. So in that particular case, again, it's technology that's allowing for flexibility. Yes. About half our editors are inside, but at least half our editors are outside. And they're spread all over the country in different areas, you know, whether it's Minnesota or Charleston or Tucson or... But again, this, this is not specific to sci-fi, is it? It isn't, but when we first started it, nobody else was doing it. To the best of my knowledge, we were the first ones doing it in publishing. Right. And it allowed me, because I was willing to meet the life desires of editors, I was able to recruit people from much bigger, more established companies. They wouldn't have taken the risk if I was just asking them to move down the street in New York. Why would they leave Time Warner to come to this startup that was risky? But if I would let them rearrange their life the way they always had dreamed to do it, they would do it. And so I was able to bring in the kind of talent which within seven years got us voted best publisher, and we've been voted best publisher every year since, by the largest poll in the field, reader poll. And I think really this was about structuring jobs in a way that motivated people really talented people to want to join and work with us. It showed a kind of a flexibility and also a, an appreciation for what's most important in the, their lives. Yeah. I recently uh, interviewed Rocky Steinauer of the Steinauer Press, yeah. uh, who's 80 this year. He spent time in the Navy and he used the Naval officers rules as his company regulation book. But the primary thing was uh, loyalty, that everyone worked together. I'd like to look at that in terms of your readers, because again, the thing that seems to identify science fiction, or at least separate it from the rest of publishing, is the incredible loyalty that your readers have to not just the genre, but specific audiences, and collecting specific authors, more so, I think, than outside. Mm -hmm. It's a little hard for me to talk to that, because although I can talk to the science fiction part, I would hesitate to say, how does it compare to something I don't publish and don't involve myself in? But yeah, I do see that 
what you say is true. There's a tremendous loyalty in the science fiction field to what's being done to the authors particularly. The authors are our brands. I'd love to think Tor was the main brand, but the main brand is our author. How is the science fiction reader different from other readers then? I think many readers want things comfortable. They want things reinforced. Uh, romance, happily holding hands and walking into the twilight together. Tied up with a bow. Yeah, everything tied up with a bow. And I think a good deal of entertainment fiction is about that, making people comfortable, making people relax. I think science fiction is about making people think, make, make them explore what's possible. Can that be done? Yeah. And isn't that exciting if it can be done, and how can we do it? So it's a different mindset, then. It's, yeah. it's almost the opposite. It's like, uh, I want things shaken around a bit, and uh, I want I want to come up with some interesting new ways of looking at things, yeah. versus I want my world to be circumscribed and orderly yes. and predictable. Yeah, and I think that, that does create a loyalty. And w the loyalty is because of the, the appreciation for new ideas? Yeah, I think the loyalty is to the dream, to the fact that together... They maybe even also feel a little bit outsiders. You know, you look at your average sitcom on the television or in the movies, so much is written to make you comfortable and relax and have a nice half hour. Yeah. You know? It's like euthanize you almost. Yeah. Whereas here, they're sharing a voyage forward. Into the unknown. Yeah. One of the things about the, the genre is that there's all sorts of discussion about where it should start and stop and... You know, should it be just about space travel, or should it include viral belief genes, or is there a need for definitive boundaries? Or? No, definitely, uh, in my opinion, no. When I started tour, I said, hey, we're going to do science fiction, or maybe what we're going to do is novels of uh, history, past, present, and future. The idea was that archaeology and anthropology are also sciences, and you can extrapolate backwards, too. We've got a husband and wife uh, archaeologist team who are doing a really strong series for us, have been doing it for years, about how the first peoples came to various parts of North America, how the first peoples came across the, the Bering Strait 25,000 years ago and down in front of the Laurentide ice sheet and settled near where Calgary is now, you know, and how they proceeded south, spread to the basin of the Great Lakes on both sides of the Great Lakes, how they spread farther south down the, the cultures of the mound builders of the Mississippi River. To me, this is science fiction. This is extrapolating from what we know from archaeology to what may have been. What that does is it leads you forward, okay? So that's why we have this forge line. It leads you forward into first contact. People normally think the other way, first contact, human and alien. But the same editor who is comfortable with first contact between these radically different civilizations of human and alien also is comfortable with first contact between Stone Age North American and Industrial European. Columbus. Same kind of clash of cultures and change and... Well, it's going to be, you know, very similar. You, you look at exactly what happened back then and, and you know, there may well be, a, as you say, a stronger of the two, whatever technology they've got, they're going to try and wipe out the other one. So you get led forward from the past. But you also get lit back from the future. We found that we were doing, you know, a lot of far future science fiction, of course, but we were also doing near future. We found that they tended to be thrillers set 10, 20 years. This is likely to be the next step. Yep. Okay. Yep. But we saw that Tom Clancy was setting action on a satellite in Cardinal of the Kremlin 15 years in the future. And we said to ourselves, gee, Gene is doing things similar to that. Maybe we should call it a techno thriller. 
So we began to call Dean's stuff techno-thriller instead of science fiction. And the first book we called techno-thriller made the New York Times list. So it's a question of packaging? So it, was, it was a question of what do people think they want to read. There apparently were more people who thought they wanted to read at that moment in time techno-thrillers than thought they wanted to read science fiction. Same darn book. So anyway, you're led back from the future through the techno-thriller. That brings you into the thriller. On the other end, you're brought into the American historical. They maybe meet somewhere around World War II, so we have this lump in the middle, which is mundane. But you don't want to limit your editors, and you don't want to, although you would prefer an author to write for a particular market, because he is the brand, and people don't want to get ginger ale when they're ordering Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Still, you can't say to a creative person, no, you can never do this. Okay. So we need to have a place to publish an author who wants to do that kind of thing. Also creative editors, okay? We bring in these editors from various houses. They have in the past worked on more than science fiction. You don't want to say to them if they have a, a fine author who they've worked with in the past and wants to continue to work with that editor, no, no, we're, we're too structured, we can't do that book. So again, it's flexibility. Again, it's flexibility. Yeah. You know, we, we have a bunch of editors. One of the things I, I thought would be fun to do was I saw that people were old friends. They were retiring, and they didn't want to be totally retired. They didn't want to work full-time either. So I would say to different people, is there a couple of authors you'd like to still work with when you feel like it? So we've got a bunch of guys that are doing one or two authors. You know, and, and some of those authors, Pat O'Connor, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Popular Library and bought things like To Kill a Mockingbird over there, you know, he edited Andrew Greeley, who has been very, very successful for us over the years. When Pat retired and was not working any longer in publishing, he said he'd love to still work with Andy. So we did two Andy really books a year. Isn't that great? Mark Jaffe, who used to be the editor-in-chief of Phantom, is retired. Yeah. And he just brought us a, a book by William Peter Blatty. Blatty hasn't written anything since The Exorcist and its sequel. He hasn't written anything in over right? 25 years. He hasn't really had to uh, financially. That was the point. He was He's really charming. You know, I said to him, you wrote these wonderful stories because they were, you know, oh, it's just yeah. a great book. Uh, you wrote, wrote these wonderful stories and then you stop. Why haven't you written anything in 25 years? More than 25 years. He said, well, you know, there was $36 million worth of royalties <laughs> from the books and then there was the movies and there were the royalties and I got lazy. <laughs> he said, but I had a long enough vacation. I want to work again. So uh, over the next two years, we've bought three books from him. And we'll be publishing his first things he's done since The Exorcist. Oh, excellent. You know, yeah. Dimiter is the first one, which yeah. we'll do next, uh, next, I think, February. Because you talk about history, past, present, future. Yeah. History repeats itself. Yeah. It's cyclical. Yeah. It's difficult to come up with new ideas. And there may well have been civilization that was further advanced than we were. Mm -hmm. But there's also science fiction as, as a warning. Oh, yeah. I mean, Huxley's... Uh, 1984, yeah, and, Brave and New World, yeah. Animal Farm. I yeah. suppose that's that sort of dystopia and utopia, is, is is that, that's key to your... Uh, is 1984 a historical now? <laughs> it fits into your definition, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the future being written yeah. uh, from the past. Yeah, and I think, you know, we want to explore in all these ways. Just in winding down here, you've mentioned that first comes the story, and it must be honest or done in a way that's honest. What, what does that mean? Well, what I mean is, I think you got to, first of all, you've got to entertain, but you've got to tell a story that is consistent and that is presented. When I said honest, I was talking more about the presentation. People who haven't read a book, 
saying, hey, if you packaged it differently, you know, people in the sales structure, you know, that was a bestseller. Can't we package it that way? You don't want to get the wrong book to the wrong person. Or put the wrong label on it and disappoint people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe you made the sale that time, but it's very short-sighted thinking. The way to build reading is to make people delighted with what they bought and the time they've spent reading it. So I think you got to have a whole combined package which brings together the right story for the right person, presented in a way that will attract the right person. That's what you mean by honest. Yeah. The other definition of sci-fi, something that's been closely connected with it, is libertarianism. Well, I think it's an aspect. Hypotheticals that probe limits and then the threats to yeah. liberty. Yeah, it's an important aspect, but you know there are, are things which are very different, which explore from a different viewpoint the things which might win a Prometheus Award, and yet would not be considered libertarian at all, and yet they really are dealing with the same philosophy. Uh -huh. I think there's room for both. A friend of mine called science fiction a, an art form or an outlet for 40-year-old virgins. I'm not sure what that means. And I, I think that's a limiting of science fiction. The way I was explaining it to you, you know, there are many aspects of science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the stereotype, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. You're dealing with nerds who are nerds. Yeah. What percentage of sci-fi readers are nerds, do you think? Whatever that means. You know, I, I think there's a core nerd group who would fit that definition. I think there are huge numbers of science fiction readers who, on the other extreme from nerds, don't even know they're reading science fiction. I mean, Michael Crichton was never presented as, as science fiction, and yet essentially everything he wrote was science fiction. But it was marketed to the general audience. Yeah, it's but something slightly different. It was thriller, but it wasn't a medical thriller. It was... I mean, his first big bestseller was Andromeda Strain, a plague from space. Yeah. Things like Jurassic Park, for goodness sake. Yeah. Yeah. Bringing back the dinosaurs, cloning them, whether genetic engineering or biological engineering. or. And these are, again, all on the cutting edge of human research. Yes. That's what pulls yes. it together. Yeah. Is that a lot of these successful writers are connected to the leading minds in the world and the work that they're doing. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. I think it goes a little a little broader in when you begin to explore philosophy and politics as you do in the nineteen eighty four Brave New World, you're heading in a somewhat different direction. But they're both science fiction and they're both and exploration. The, the two, they're difficult yeah. to separate too though, aren't yeah. they? I mean the future, you know, the, the future of the when it when it deals with oppression or colonialism, yes. and these are topics that, if there's two different races or entities that come into contact with each other, one's going to try and oppress the other, or colonize the other, or yeah. maybe live harmoniously together. Or, or they they may be sanctimoniously believing that their way is so good that they just have to enlighten the other, whether the other wants to be enlightened or not. That's right. We're <laughs> uh, doing it for your own good. Yeah. yeah. Just in closing then, I wonder if you could tell me uh, why science fiction for you? Well, you know, I, I began to read it. My mother liked it. It was unusual for women to be reading it in those days. But my mother liked it and bought it for me for birthday presents when I was eight. And she got me a subscription to the old Astounding and a subscription to Galaxy. She would buy these gnome press. Not many people were publishing science fiction in those days. Books for me. And I just always loved it. And then I was privileged to work with the Ballantines, who had started the very first science fiction line, the very first fantasy line. 
and they were the kind of people who were generous of their time and their experience. So they kind of mentored me, they encouraged me in an area that I already had a strong leaning toward. And so when I had an opportunity to do something, I thought, you know, you're going to spend your life working. Let's do something that you can have fun with. Let's do something you love. And you do it better. And that's why science fiction. Do you collect anyone? Don't really collect anyone in particular, no. I used to read every book we publish, and I am embarrassed to say that I, I no longer... You know, we did over five, over uh, 250 books last year. I no longer read every book we publish, but I read every author. And <laughs> it's a real challenge to get all the authors that we publish read at least once and to go on to read broadly enough for perspective. And yeah, I mean, are there some books that I have collected over the years that I love and value? Yeah. I got a first edition of Dune Frank Herbert gave me when I was publishing his paperback. And I went up to visit him up on the Olympic Peninsula. And we went out in the dawn and uh, picked mazataki mushrooms and came back and fed his wife, fried them up for us. And they both signed this first edition Chilton of all, of all publishers, best known for auto manuals. And I, you know, I've got some, some wonderful old books that I love, but I'm not per se a collector. You attach the smell of those mushrooms to the the, the, the smell of those mushrooms aren't in the book. Of that I think memory of that morning, comes up. Whenever I see the book, I think of that morning. Well, thanks very much for sharing uh, your story with us, and best of luck in all future, past, thank you, present. My pleasure.